We just thank you for your word. And Lord, as we've been looking at these great characters of faith who, who finished the job that you gave them, Lord, that you set before them, uh, now we leave that chapter. And, and Lord, uh, it, the focus turns to us. And what are we going to do with that information that we've learned? What are we going to do with the, this, this idea of running our race and finishing the race and serving you? And Lord, that's the lesson that you want to teach us today. And, and uh, what a great lesson it is, Lord. What a great privilege it is to serve you. What a great grace it is that, that you gift us with, with uh, the privilege of serving the true and living God, Lord. What, and uh, you give us an eternal purpose in life. And, and Lord, you, you give us a vision. You give us a goal. Uh, and Lord, you see us through the race. We, we're just so grateful for all of that. But Lord, most of all, we're grateful for our salvation and for the cross and what you've done for us there. And we just thank you for Jesus and his blood. And it's his, in his precious name that I pray today. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, I don't know if you're a football fan or not, or especially a Saints fan. Any Saints fans in here? Oh, you, all of you left them, hadn't you? <laughs> But I don't know if you know, I used to be a Saints fan. It's hard to be a Saints fan. And it's getting hard to be a Saints fan again. They're looking pretty bad. I don't know if you've noticed, but they, they look pretty bad. Uh, this could be the year that the bags return. That's how bad they look. I mean, I, 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 the other day, last Sunday, I watched the last few minutes of the game, and it was really bad. I mean, all they needed, they're playing the worst team in the, in the league, and all they needed was a touchdown to take the lead, and, they, and the defense got the ball back for them twice, and what did they do? They ran the ball, and they fumbled the ball back to Tampa Bay. And I was sitting in my armchair knowing exactly what they needed to do. I mean, I, I was the classical armchair quarterback. I mean, I, I was yelling, throw the ball, throw the ball. But they wouldn't throw the ball. They kept running it. They kept fumbling it. And they looked really, really bad. Now, what's all that got to do with the lesson today? Well, you know what? I think a lot of Christians are like me in my armchair. They're armchair quarterbacks. What's an armchair quarterback? It's somebody who uh, ha pretends to have an expertise or, or, or thinks they have an expertise in a particular area where, they've, where they're really not involved. Maybe they haven't even played that particular sport, but they think they, they know better than the coaches and they know better than the general managers, and so they sit in their armchairs and they direct things. Well, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of Christians in the church today that are like armchair quarterbacks. Uh, they really aren't in the game. They, they understand or they think they understand how it should work, but they never really get in the game themselves. I had a while back, I had a lady come up to me after the service, and she wanted to know if, what kind of door-to-door -door witnessing program we had. And I said, we don't have a door-to-door -door witnessing program. I said, we did have a couple of guys a while back. Jesse was one of them that went door-to-door, -door and they asked anybody who wanted to go, that wanted to go with them could go. But I said, we don't have a door-to-door -door witnessing program per se. And she said, oh, really? And I said, no, we really don't. And she said, well, you know, what... I, she said, what do you do? Do you have any kind of witnessing program? I said, yeah, we have a witnessing program. And I said, I believe it's this. I believe it's my job and the church's job to equip the saints for the ministry so that they go back into the community, go back into their neighborhoods, go back to their job, and they're witnesses for Jesus Christ. And I, and I thought about it a minute, and the lady kind of looked at me, well, that's not much of a witnessing program. And, I, and so I asked her, I pondered it for a second, and I asked her, I said, 
well, do you do door-to-door witnessing? And she said, no, I don't. I said, and she said she was searching for a church and looking for a church, and she wanted one that did door-to-door witnessing. I said, well, do you do door-to-door witnessing? And she said, no, I don't do door-to-door witnessing. I said, where do you serve the Lord? I mean, what's your service? Well, I don't really have time to serve the Lord. Well, see, I wasn't really impressed with her uh, idea that we should do door-to-door witnessing when she wasn't serving the Lord in any aspect of her life. And so, so uh, you know, to me, she was just an armchair quarterback. Uh, you know, it, I certainly believe if you want a door-to-door witness, you certainly can do that. If you want to have a witnessing program and, it's, and we pray about it and the church wants to, to get involved, then we'll get involved with you. But it's funny to me, you know, in Luke chapter 10, and it's why you want to understand the word. In Luke chapter 10, when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, do you remember what he told them? He told them, do not go door to door. Did you know that? In Luke chapter 10, he said, do not go door to door. What did he tell them to do? He told them, you go to a particular house, the first house you come into into the city, and once you get to that house, then then uh, if they let you in, then, then that's where your, your ministry begins. If they kick you out, then dust your feet and leave. But then from there, allow the Spirit of God to lead you as to where you are to witness. And he specifically said, do not go door to door. Now, that doesn't mean door to door witnessing is wrong, but witnessing outside the direction of the Holy Spirit is wrong. And so you witness as God leads you. And if you're doing anything else and you're trying to tell other people how to do it because you see it to be, it ought to be done a certain way in your flesh, then all you are is an armchair quarterback. Now, let me say this. If you're truly born again, if you're truly disciples of Jesus Christ, we've all been called to be witnesses. But, just, but listen to me very carefully. You can't be a witness for Jesus Christ if you aren't in the game. If you aren't in the game. And that's what the author of, of, the, the, of Hebrews is going to tell us today. He's going to encourage us to get into the race. He's going to say, get out of your armchair and quit being a spectator and get into the game. That's, that's the encouragement that we're going to get here. It's not a rebuke. It's an encouragement. So, so let's, let's go to chapter 12, uh, verse number 1, and let's read that verse and And uh, immediately, what do we see there? Verse number 1 of chapter 12. Therefore, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with the endurance the race that God, I'll, I'll add that, has set before us. Let us run the race that God has set before us. Now, whenever we see the therefore, what do we do? We ask, what is there for? Well, this therefore refers back to the last chapter. It refers back to the hall of faith and all of these great men and women, these biblical characters who had the faith to finish the job. And so men and women that were in the game, that they ran the race that God had set for them, they they represent to us a cloud of witnesses. Therefore, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we're to get into the game. Now, I've heard a lot of sermons about this cloud of witnesses. And let me tell you how they go. That up in heaven, there's a stadium. And in those stadium, in that stadium, today, right now, 
are the Old Testament saints. And they're looking down, and the New Testament saints had gone on before us, and they're looking down on us to see how we're running our race. And when we do well, they cheer us on. If we do bad, they boo us. I mean, some of us are doing so bad, they're probably wearing bags right now over their heads. I don't buy into that interpretation at all. And let me tell you the main reason I don't buy into that interpretation. Because I'm going to tell you what, when you get to heaven, your eyes are not going to be focused on this earth. Your eyes are going to be focused on one thing, and that's Jehovah God, Jesus Christ in the flesh. That's where you're focused. You're not going to be able to look at anything else but the glory of God. Now, I certainly believe that the saints in heaven have some idea of what's going on here on earth. And I believe that God sends them down here on occasion. I mean, we know that from the case of Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. They came down to talk with Jesus about his departure. So I'm, you might be running into Old Testament saints all the time, but when they're back in heaven, they're not in some stadium looking down here, looking down here watching us. Look, their eyes are totally on the Lord. So, again, I don't buy that. Now, he uses this metaphor of a cloud of witness. I mean, why does he use that? Well, when you think of a cloud, you think of density. There, there's a lot of witnesses, what he's saying, of people above who have gone on before us, who, who live in heaven now, uh, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, men like Moses and Elijah and, and the Apostle Paul and Peter. They've gone on before us. Uh, but they left behind a great witness. They left behind a great witness, that, and, and we should be able to look at that witness, and it should motivate us to live the way, not necessarily the way they always lived on earth, but to live the way they lived when they were serving the Lord the way they should have served the Lord. Men and women who finished the job. That's what we saw last week. Uh, they ran the race that God had set before them. And there's a lot that we can learn from studying those people who have gone on before us. I mean, not only just reading about the Old Testament saints, read, read historical books or novels or biographies of some of the New Testament saints. That will encourage you as you run your race. I mean, what do we learn from these guys? Well, first of all, the first thing I learned from the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints that have gone on before us is they were not armchair quarterbacks. I mean, they were not spectators. They were in the game. The very word witness right there in the Greek is the word martyrin from which we get our English word martyr. What were, it, that doesn't necessarily mean you have to, to die, but it means you give your life to your cause. And these were men and women who gave their life to their cause. They gave their life to the service of the Lord. And, and, and so uh, we learn from that. The second thing we can learn from that, we see here in this verse, let us cast aside every weight. I mean, you study some of the Old Testament saints, and a lot of times they got weighed down with the things of this world, and, and, and they couldn't run very fast. You know, imagine that you're about to begin a marathon, and at the starting gate, all the people are lined up, and the guy next to you is, weighs about 300 pounds, and he's, and he's wearing jeans, and he's got a sweatshirt on, and he's got a backpack, and you ask him what's in the backpack, and he said, I've got a, a six-pack of Pepsi, and and a case of Twinkies, you know, for, to snack along the way. Now, you've got to figure that guy's not going to make it to the end. He's weighed down way too much with the things, of, with junk and the things of this world, so he, he's not going to make it. 
Well, well, some of us are like the guy in my illustration. Man, we're so weighed down with the junk of this world that we can't run the race. I mean, I think of the junk in my life. You know what? I got to tell you something. Television, for the most part, is junk. And I think we all watch way too much television. Movies, for the most part, are junk. I'm not saying you never watch a movie and you never watch television. But I got to tell you something. If it's weighing you down, and it's put you in a position where you can't run the race, then you need to just put it aside. You need to get it out of your life. If there's something that you know in your life that's keeping you from serving the Lord, I tell you the best thing to do is to get it out of your life totally. Because if it's weighing you down, then, then uh, uh, it's going to slow you down, and you're going to go nowhere fast. Well, the third thing that we learn from these witnesses, and we, we see it right here, is that we're, to, that, that we're to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. It trips us up is really what that means right there. We're to, we're to set that sin aside. We know that. And, I mean, we can look at the characters in the Bible who, who, who didn't do so well because of the sin that tripped them up. I mean, Samson. I mean, he finished the job. We, we saw last week he finished the job that called, God had called him to do, but he could have done so much more. And he certainly did the job the hard way. I mean, his sin cost him his life. It cost him his joy. It cost him his peace. I mean, and he died in, basically in shame because, of, because he was tripped up by his sin. I mean, look at old David. He was running like a champ. And then he fell into sin with Bathsheba and he had Uriah killed. And man, I mean, he was slowed down to a snail's pace at that point. Moses, man, Moses, as great as that man was, that temper got him. And any of you got tempers? Say amen. Oh, no. Amen. I'll say it the loudest, yeah. I mean, his temper tripped him up on several occasions. Kept him out of the promised land. Although, I, again, I don't think Moses would have ever gone in the promised land because he represents the law. But even old Joshua, Joshua allowed sin in the camp and he brought the, the marching armies of Israel to a screeching halt because he allowed sin in the camp. Samuel, I don't think there's a greater man in the Bible than Samuel. And Samuel, remember what he did when he, was about, when he started getting old? He gave power to his wicked sons. And he lost the respect of the people of Israel. Respect that it took his whole life to gain. He lost it just like that. Because he gave that power to his son. So sin trips us up. And then the last thing that we learn from these martyrs and, and we see in our text is that let us run with endurance. Now if it tells me I've got to run with endurance, what kind of race am I running? Am I running a sprint or am I running a marathon? I'm running a marathon. I mean, and that means it's going to require lots of patience and it's going to require endurance. If you're in the race, it's going to be a long race. Let me tell you how long it lasts. It lasts from the day you get saved to the day you die. You're, that's how long your race is going to last. I mean, Abraham and Sarah, how long did it take them to have that promised child, Isaac? 25 long years. And as soon as they got the child, was their race over? No, their race was over. It only, it only really started good. Moses, I think of Moses, man. That poor guy, he was 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. 40 years in, I mean, you're thinking, wow, he got to live to be 120 years old. I bet you there were times he wished he didn't live to be 50. 40 years in the wilderness before he even made it to the edge of the promise. He didn't even get to go in. A 120-year race Moses ran, to be exact. That's a long race. 
I look at Daniel. We've been looking at Daniel on Wednesday night. When did Daniel have his greatest visions? When he was, a, when he was an older man. Man, he ran his race well. So our dreams and our visions are going to take a long time. They're going to take years, even decades, even a lifetime to, for us to see those visions through. And so we can't quit. We've got to have the patience to endure. And so we keep running. We stay in the race until when? Until God calls us home. Let me tell you what the retirement plan, I mean, you might retire from your job, but you don't retire from service to the Lord. If you retire from service to the Lord, then, then, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong because he doesn't want you to retire. He wants you to keep running until he calls you home. And, you know, I don't think, we talk about the Old Testament examples, but just stop a minute and think about Jesus Christ and the race he ran. Who did he run that race for? For himself? For his own glory? He had all the glory in heaven. He's a king of kings and lord of lords, and he emptied himself of that glory so he could run that race for who? For you, for me. That's, that's, that's who he ran it for. And that's the next example we get in verse number three. For consider, ponder him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged of, in your souls. You get weary and discouraged of running your race? Well, then, then think about what Jesus did for you. Think about what he did for you. Think about what he's doing for you. Think about what he's going to do for you. Think about his perfect love, and that perfect love cast all, all fear, and it cast out all discouragement. I mean, you, have, you haven't run near the race, a race anything like the race like he ran. I've, I've jumped, did I? No, I jumped ahead of verse. Let's go back to verse number two. I, I don't know why I want to skip that verse. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God so the Old Testament saints are up in heaven and where are their eyes focused they're focused on the Lord the New Testament saints that have gone on before us they're focused on the Lord down here on earth who should we be focused on on the Lord that's who we should be looking at and there's two reasons we should be looking at him one is the example that he set for us I mean, he finished the race, the toughest race of all. And, and was he an armchair quarterback? No, he wasn't an armchair quarterback. He was in the game to the end. You know, I hear expositors sometimes talk about Jesus as if he embraced the cross, as if he found joy in the cross. Friends, he didn't find joy in the cross. He despised the cross. He didn't love the cross. You know why he died on the cross? Because he loved you. That's why, not because he loved the cross. He loved you. He despised the shame of the cross. But it, from there he went to glory and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I mean, why do we endure the race? I mean, he endured the race because he loves us. Why should we endure? Why should we get into the race? And why should we endure in the race? For the same reason. Because he first loved us, we love him. Let me tell you the second reason. The second reason we keep our focus on Jesus Christ. Because look at what it says there in the verse. He is the author and finisher of our faith. 
the just shall live by faith. So he's talking about our lives. He's the one who is the author of our lives. I mean, it began way back when he created this creation for us, for himself and for us. And then it went on. He, he wrote, continued to write the story when he died on the cross for us. I mean, you realize that when he died on the cross for us, he was writing your story, that he knew your name. I mean, that, that just blows my mind, but he's omniscient, so he knew my name. He knew that he was dying for me. He knew that he was dying for you when he was on that cross. He was writing our story. When he knitted us together in our mother's womb, he was writing our story. On August the 23rd, 1989, when he saved me from the pit of hell, that was part of my story. A few years later, when he called me into the ministry, that was part of my story. He's written a story for every single one of us. He's the author of our story. He knows the day. Our days are numbered. He knows the day when he's going to bring us home. He's already written that down. He's written the story down. It's already written down. And he knows when he'll see us in glory. You know, Paul puts it like this. Go with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. He tells about Christ writing our story in Ephesians chapter 2, just a few books back towards Matthew. Listen to what he says. For passage we're all familiar with. It says, For grace you have been saved through faith. I'm in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. I'm sorry. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. And not of works, lest anyone should boast. What he's saying right there is Christ authored your salvation. He wrote the story of your salvation. It was a gift that he's given to each and every one of us who are born again. But that's not the only thing. Look, a lot of times we, we look at those two verses and we skip verse number 10. For we are his workmanship. I mean, he's not only written the story of our salvation, he's written the story of our work. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he wrote about. Or prepared beforehand, before when? Before we were even born, that we should walk in them. And so he's authored my race. He's put me in the game. And not only that, the text tells us, going back to Hebrews, it tells us that he is the finisher of my race. What does that mean, he's the finisher of my race? Well, it means that he's going to see me through. If I put my faith and trust in him, He's the one who's going to carry me to the end of my race. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and yet, and, yet, and now yet, uh, and Christ, let's read it. I thought I knew it. I get nervous and I can't quote him anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. It's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. See, I live by faith in the Son of God. I trust Christ to, to, with my life. I trust Him to direct my race. I trust Him to strengthen me for my race. I tr trust Him to see me to the finish line. Then you go back to Hebrews again, and we see that verse, For consider Him who endured such hostility for, from sinners against Himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. I mean, if you remember, ponder what He's done for you, that'll, that'll wipe out that discouragement. And then, because look what he says in verse number four. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. You know, armchair quarterbacks don't want anything to do with blood. 
The only red thing they ever get on them is the salsa they're eating, where they're eating chips and salsa. But they don't want anything to do with blood. But I'll tell you this, if you're in the race, if you're really in the race, you're going to face some discomfort. But, but as he says right here, you're probably not going to shed your blood. There'll be very few people in this room, if any, who will actually shed their blood for Jesus Christ. So, so he encourages them. He says, hey, you, you don't, don't, don't whine so much. You've not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Sure, you're going to face some discomfort. It's going to come from, in your battle against sin, against the devil, against this world, you've got an enemy, and you're, you're going to face some discomfort. But here's where he heads next. Here's what I want you to see. Most of the discomfort that we face doesn't come from the devil. It doesn't come from our enemies, the enemies of the cross. You know where most of the discomfort comes? Now, the enemy is I, so a lot of it we bring on ourselves. But you know where most of our discomfort comes from? It comes from God himself. It comes from God himself. If you get a really bad illness, if you get a really bad situation at home, if you lose your job, you know, the first thing we do, we say, the devil did it. But, man, I tell you what, the first thing I do, I've learned to do is say, okay, Lord, what are you trying to tell me in this? Because God disciplines his children. And, and, and that's, the source of most of our discomfort is the discipline of the Lord. And that's where he heads next. Look at what he says in the next, in the next part of the text. He says, we'll read a few verses here. He said, and you have forgotten this exhortation which speaks to you as sons. I mean, you're all up in the, in, in the air and you get upset at God because the race has gotten so tough and, and it seems that everything's against you. Well, my sons do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Even if it's the devil attacking you. You know, ultimately, that's, the Lord has allowed that, so it's coming from the hand of the Lord. My son, so he says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges, scourge is a, is a tough word there. He beats the, you know, you know he beats, beats you pretty bad. He beats, he scourges every son whom he receives. And if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten us? Anybody who's ever played sports knows that the toughest part of the sport is not the game. The toughest part of the sport is the practice. Because it's at the practice where the coach dishes out his discipline. If the coach is worth his salt, he's going to dish out his discipline. Because any coach who, who, who understands how to win understands how, the importance of discipline. Because it's discipline that makes better players. I mean, if you don't discipline your players, you're going to have poor players. I don't care how athletic they are. It's discipline that makes them play as a team. And if you don't play as a team, I don't care how many superstars you have, you're not going to do, you're not going to do any good, good. You're not going to win. And it's discipline that gives the players the strength to endure to the finish. You watch a team that's undisciplined, and, and, and they might do good for three quarters, but in the fourth quarter they fall apart because they have no discipline. 
at practice. They don't run. They don't, they don't endure. They quit in the end. And most importantly, a good coach knows this, that discipline produces character. It produces character. You know, I, I didn't make my boys play football. Eli wanted a video game really bad when we were living in Destin. I said, it was a $50 video game. I said, I'll buy it if you'll go out and play football for two weeks, if you'll just play for two weeks. And he, he suckered and bought, he bought into it and went to play football. But after a couple of weeks, he really liked the game. And I like the idea of him and Nathan playing football. And I, I, I mean, you can, it can be banned or anything. Just something where they're getting some kind of discipline. They got plenty of discipline at home, trust me. But anything I could add to it, I wanted to add to it. And football was a good source of discipline. And, and we were blessed because we had the first few coaches they had were real disciplinarians. And, and they understood that that discipline equated to love. They understood that. And, and, and they receive that discipline. Well, i got to tell you something. You know who the best coach ever is? Jesus Christ. And you're in his game, and, and so you better figure you're going to get disciplined. You're going to be the most disciplined people in the world if you're on his team. That, that means life's going to be tough at times. But not only is he your coach, he's your father. You know who, uh, you, do you know who make the best coaches? Dads. I'm convinced of that. Overall, in my experience in sports, dads make the best coaches. Dads that really love their kids for two reasons. First of all, the kid knows he's going to be treated fairly. Maybe even get a break here and there that other kids don't get. But they also know that they're going to be disciplined more than anybody else on the team. When my kids played for me in sports, they were disciplined more than any other kid on the team. There's some things I might have let some other kids get away with, but boy, they had better not even think about trying. And, and that's the way it is in most cases. I, 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 my experience has been the most disciplined kids on almost every team are the coach's kids, where the coach has that, that privilege. Now, so if you're a child of God, and God's the best coach ever, then you're going to be disciplined. Look at verse number 8. Because look at what he says. But if you are chastened, or, but if you are without chastening, of which, wait, yeah, that's the one. Of, but if you are without chastening, of which you all have become partakers, if you're a child of God, then, but if you're without it, you are illegitimate and not sons and daughters of God. You know, have you ever wondered why, some people get away with just about everything and you don't get away with nothing? I mean, you, there's not anything. You don't get away with anything. Well, cheer up. I mean, cheer up. I mean, the reason you don't get away with anything is because you're a child of God. That's good news. If you're without chastening, if you feel like, man, I get away with just about everything I do, I'm, you know, you don't, you're not going to believe what I'm doing right now and I'm getting away with it. Well, if you're getting away with it, hey, you're not a child of God. Or you're not going to get away with it long, let me put it that way. You're lost. You might call yourself a Christian, but you're a pretender. 
you could call yourself a Christian and, 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 and man, I, I tell you, that's what bothers me about some of these things I've seen in the last couple of years. I mean, a pastor that, that lived a big fraud that I happen to go to his church and he ends up murdering a woman he's living with. I mean, I, I, I just, a, a pastor who's pastored one of the largest churches in the country and he's addicted to a pornography and, he, and he's having all sorts of affairs and getting away with it. You know what? If I was in their shoes, that would scare the stew out of me that I was getting away with it for so long. How was I getting away with it? Well, the only answer is right here. You're, if you're without chastity, which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. You know, if you're a legitimate child of God, you're going to be chastened. You can just expect it. You're going to be chastened. And, and look at the good news in the last part. We'll read these last few verses here. Look at verse number 9. He says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. So, so you know what? You know, I have this bad habit. I, I used to have this bad habit. I just get really mad at the Lord when bad things came into my life. How disrespectful is that? When all God is doing is showing me how much he loves me. I mean, we respect our fathers. We should. Maybe some of us don't, but we should when they, when they discipline us. Should we not much more readily be subjected to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seems best to them, but for our profit, for our good, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no, now, no chastening seems to be joyful for, for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable, really peace there, fruit of peace, of righteousness to those who have been trained by. You can enter in Greek, you can interchange those words right there and, and make that righteousness of peace, the fruit of peace. And I really think that's what he's saying right there. Now, how many of you like to be chastened? Raise your hand. One. Two. I don't like it. But I know from my experience as a father, as a teacher, and as a coach, that most, if not all, of the people who you chasten, most of those, to some degree, embrace discipline because deep down inside they know that discipline equates to love that's why we should embrace the discipline of the Lord because God is love and all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose and so whenever he disciplines us it's simply his love he's showing us his love you know I've seen so many kids that had parents that wouldn't take the time to discipline them. That, that, because discipline is painful. I mean, it's painful, more painful for the parent than it is for the child, I believe. The, child, the kid will argue against that sometimes. But it's very painful to discipline your children. It's a, it's a lot of trouble. It takes a lot of time. 
And a lot of parents don't take that time and they don't take that effort and they don't want to suffer that pain and so they don't discipline their children. And that's why you see some of these kids, when you see them on a baseball team or a football team, they embrace their coach because they understand that that coach cares enough about them to discipline them. And God cares enough about you to discipline you. And I got news for you, he's got plenty of time. You might not have time to discipline your children, but he's got plenty of time to discipline you. He can keep you around as long as he wants to. I spent seven days in jail when, years ago, right before I got saved, about six months before I got saved. God can play tricks with time. I'm going to tell you what, those seven days in jail were at least seven years. Mentally, in my mind, they just seemed to never end. Now, I can go to on a motorcycle trip and seven days last about 30 minutes. But God can take, God can take, he's got plenty of time. He's got plenty of time to deal with us. And he, if you're a child of God, you, you, we should embrace that discipline because again, that discipline is love. And in the end, we know that that, patient, that uh, painful chasing has worked for our good. You know it deep down inside. When you come out of a trial and you know the Lord's brought you through that trial, you know that it's worked for your good. You know, I'm a thorough believer. The harder the trial, the more difficult the trial, the more you see the Lord and the more you see what he's doing in your heart and in your life. He's working for your good. Now, let me say this as we close. Everybody in this room is running some sort of race. Even if you're lost, you're running a race. Let me tell you what that race is called. It's called the rat race. (laughs) Some Christians think they're in the rat race, but you need to get out of that race. Why is it called a rat race? You ever seen a rat in a maze? running around in that maze, looking for the end of the maze, a way out. Does he ever find it? No. He runs around without any purpose, never finding his way out. Hey, you're running with a purpose. You're in a race too. Every Christian is in a race. And and you're running a race. And that race has an end. It has a purpose. And you're going to get out. And you're going to make it to glory. You're going to finish the race. Here's the problem. We've got people who are Christians. Call them people who are real Christians. And people who are, I'll call them contenders. And we also have pretenders. You can call them armchair quarterbacks. They come to church and they... they, uh, they think they're in the race, but they're not really, they never really get in the race. They tell people how to run it, how you ought to run your race, but they never really get in the race themselves. Now, that's a scary thing. And let me tell you why that's a scary thing. You remember what Jesus said about people like that. You remember the man who was given the talents and he buried the talents. That's like a guy who's a pretender. He never gets into the race. He sits on the sideline and never 
gets into the race. Do you remember what Jesus said to do with that guy? Let me tell you what he said to do with him. Let me, let me read it to you. Cast him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where's outer darkness? Hell. You remember what he said about the guy who the Lord's coming was delayed and he went out and began to drink again and party again, beat his servants again and live like he had always lived because the Lord's coming was delayed. You remember what he said to that guy that wasn't in the race? He said, cast him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You remember what he said to the virgins who didn't have their lamps trimmed, who didn't, who weren't seeking the Lord and receiving the Spirit of the Lord and being filled with the Spirit of the Lord? You remember what he said to them? What to do with them? Cast them into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You remember what he said to the man who, who pretended to know the Lord and did all sorts of things, but he never really knew the Lord? You remember what he said to him, to do with him? Cast him into outer darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Man, that's scary stuff. You don't want to be an armchair quarterback. If you're born again, it's time to get serious about getting into the race. Now that race for you, I don't know what your race is. Who, I'm not the author and finisher of your race. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of your race. And so you want to you just give those reins to him and let him guide you through life. Let him show you where he wants you to go and what you're to do. And I'll tell you what, if you're hanging on the reins yourself and you're trusting yourself, you're a pretender. You're a pretender. You know, I, I'm, I, I don't want to put some kind of burden on you and I don't want to sound legalistic and I don't, want to, I don't want to put condemnation on you at all. You want to get in the race. David gave me a tape last week of an evangelist that came to First Baptist and he went to the doctor and the doctor set him down and said, you got a really bad heart. I don't know what David was trying to tell me, but he said, you got it. This guy's was conditioned a lot worse than mine. I mean, he was, wasn't expected to live a week. He had a, had a annual, uh, what is that thing where your arteries blow up? Aneurysm. Yeah, right at the base of his heart that they couldn't operate on. And they told him to get his affairs in order. He'd be lucky to live a day. And he told his family and there were a lot of tears shed and his son was about to get married and they shed tears because they, were gonna, they wanted to have children. They wanted, be, they wanted him to do their wedding. They wanted him to be there when they had their children and they shed a lot of tears. But he said, you know, I got up from that and I was a changed man. I came out of that experience a changed man. And the main thing he said, he summarized that change this way. He said, all my guts change to gets all my guts change to gets he said no longer do I say I've got to go to church he says I get to go to church no longer do I say I've got to read my Bible or I've got to pray I get to pray 
I get to read my Bible. No longer do I have to deal with that group of neighbors I have. I get to deal with that group of neighbors I have. No longer do I get to drive, do I've got to drive my car through all that traffic. I get to drive my car through all that traffic. And he said the most important thing I learned is no longer do I do I've got to serve the Lord. I get to serve the Lord. Being in the race isn't some heavy burden. Jesus said his burden is light. You get to be in the race. You get to serve the Lord. And if you're not serving the Lord, one of two things, you're not saved or you're robbing yourself of lots of blessings and you're asking for lots of chastening and the chastening is going to come whether you're in the race or not in the race but if you're a child of God but what a great privilege we have that we get to serve the Lord let's go to the Lord in prayer Father we just thank you for your goodness we thank you for life we thank you that that we can be here this morning. We get to be here this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to serve you, but we get to serve you. We get to be used by you. We get to have a purpose. Lord, if there's anyone in this room today that is standing on the sideline, they're calling themselves a Christian and they're really not in the race, Lord, Lord, change that today. That's a dangerous place to be. Those of us that are weighted down with all sorts of, of junk from this world, Lord, help us to shed that junk so we can get into the race and get to serve you. And Lord, all that sin that so easily entangles us, Lord, help us to put that away. We know those things that are entangling us, that are keeping us from your best. Lord, I just ask that you touch every heart in here because, Lord, I know you want to do great things through every person in this room. You want to bless every person in this room with, with your presence and your goodness and your purpose. Father, we just thank you for all of that. We thank you for the blood of Christ. We thank you in his precious name. I pray. Amen.